0: Welcome to Health Law Talk presented by Shahardi Sherman Williams, health law broken down through expert discussion, real client issues, and real life experiences. Breaking barriers to understanding complex health care issues is our job.
1: And good morning, good afternoon, or wherever you're listening to this podcast, welcome to another edition of Health Law Talk here at Shahardi Sherman Williams, Conrad Meyer, Roy Bellina, two esteemed healthcare lawyers in the New Orleans area, board certified, bringing you the greatest and greatest in health law talk. And today we have a special guest in the studio with us to help our episode out, uh, Joe Aguilar. Joe Aguilar, a partner at HMS Valuation Partners, our first valuation
2: uh, speaker here. So Joe, welcome to the show. We really appreciate you coming on today. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing great. Uh, Very happy to be here. This is my hometown. uh, So it's always great back. Great to be back in New Orleans. That's fantastic. Well, I, I'm glad to have
1: you here. I know Rory is. I know we, we talked briefly before the show. Um, why don't you tell the listeners, because we, we have a good you know, provider listener audience. What, what is it about? Tell us a little bit about yourself. What about um, you do for a living? Like what, what's your job and, sure. and how does it work with healthcare And a little bit about HMS. Sure, sure.
2: Well, I am the managing partner of HMS Valuation Partners. Um, we've been around for 27 years. We actually are headquartered here out of New Orleans. Our primary work is in healthcare compliance. Uh, so we do a lot of, of uh, transaction work. We do a lot of uh, physician compensation arrangements. Um, we do medical office timeshare, real estate. So we, we pretty much span the spectrum, um, both from a evaluation standpoint as well as consulting. Uh, my area of expertise has been primarily in physician compensation, advanced practice uh, providers. I'm actually a... Um, nurse practitioner trained in women's health and and family medicine as well. So um, that has uh, brought a lot of opportunities um, in my work as well.
1: So, so, a nurse practitioner
2: and a valuation expert. That's correct. Right. That's, yes.
1: That's a, I, never, I never heard of that combination.
3: Yeah, that, I, I remember we, we spoke about that off air yeah. the last time we met out of town, but, but uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I'll have definitely some questions about that. So, tell us sure. about HMS because I'm sure yeah. a lot of our listeners know what these valuation firms do, but please tell us what your firm does.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, HMS is um, primarily focused on basically two arms uh, of work, which is both the um, health system work where we're doing a lot of the recurring regular transactions that occur every day, which can include physician employment arrangements, ER call, medical directorships, um, you name it from that perspective. And then we also do the transaction work, which is the joint venture, the practice acquisitions uh, and so forth. Um, In terms of our, um, our spectrum, as I mentioned earlier, we basically take care of any, any transaction that comes across your desk. So we have the run-of-the-mill um, real estate appraisal work, the fixed asset work, if you're looking at a, an asset purchase arrangement, or the uh, physician compensation or advanced practice compensation. We also do um, compensation design work, um, and then um, medical office timeshares, but I think one of the areas that we're starting to see a lot more work in is in the hospital-based services arrangements. So your anesthesia, your emergency medicine work, um, your hospitalist work, because as you begin to see some of those labor costs skyrocket and reimbursement uh, lessen, um, you're seeing these PSAs, the professional services agreements, kind of go up, uh, and, uh, and that's causing challenges for hospitals.
1: I, I agree. I, well, I, I was going to ask you that. You kind of, you kind of, you took 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 the words out of my mouth. What do mm-hmm. you? This is what you're seeing in 2024. This mm-hmm. is a trend you're seeing coming
2: in for the year. Exactly. So what's happening? And I, I just um, am going to be talking on on this in 2024, multiple venues. But um, mm-hmm. is that hospitals are reaching a tipping point, point. Um, and that tipping point is, has been met before, but it's it's basically the same cycle. You start with a PSA at some amount, uh, then a year later, the contractor will come back and say, well, you know, the market dynamics are suggesting that we can't afford this anymore. So they come back and they dip into the well again. Um, And it's been going on and on and on to the point where we're starting to see, um, it was probably maybe about five years ago, we are starting to counsel our clients and saying, you know, while we can support it from an FMV standpoint, is this really sustainable uh, going forward? And and at what point, uh, what are y'all using at, uh, as metrics to determine whether or not you guys should just do it on your own? Because it, at, at some point in time, it gets to the point where it's so costly that Why are we losing the 20% margin to a staffing provider when we can just do it ourselves? Well, that's a loaded question because it's not just that, it's not that easy to do it yourselves either. But um, it's gotten to the point where that question is being asked, and you see anesthesia coming in house. Um, You know, you see um, emergency medicine has already come in house. You see roll ups in radiology. um, And and, uh, what we're doing now for, for systems is really helping them, okay, now we've brought them in. What do we do now um, you know do we do we do we hand it off to our um, you know physician operation folks who are doing family medicine and cardiology and orthopedics? well the anesthesia scheduling ability is a completely different animal
1: it's a it's a very unique yeah. animal and I, I guarantee you you're not going to have any physician ops people that know what, how to handle that
2: well and that's the th- that's the issue and so even just the standpoint of, of understanding what you're getting when you actually roll in that group so right. are, are you getting a group that's um, overstaffed or understaffed overpaid or underpaid you know all that matters and we've done I remember one in particular where we looked at the anesthesia group and they just were overstaffed and and so we ended up um, talking with the hospital system and kind of right sizing as well also as also in terms of right, um, case mix or, or provider mix because we ended up using more CRNAs um, and we ended up saving you know multiples of millions on that just annually just by right-sizing this, the, the group and then you, we saw an emergency medicine I remember one in particular where the emergency medicine physicians were just um, just workhorses, but the comp was not matching. And, and it was because most of it was going to the margin or to the management uh, fees. And so we just talked with, uh, with the hospital and said, guys, you know, you can have a win win if you increase the comp. To the physicians, uh, and then you save on some of the margin, and you just bring them in house. Right, um, and that's that's been pretty much the case. Um,
1: so you cut out the management fee. You appoint one doc as a medical director to let him run the uh, the schedule, right? right? Yeah. And then you and then you just play it because they they know how to do it already. Absolutely, absolutely.
3: And has that change been going so far? How do the providers feel about coming in house versus working for? you know, outside outside company and just being that independent contractor and getting maybe the higher billables as being out of network, but still having to deal with all the administrative burdens?
2: Well, I think they do give up some of the administrative burdens um, when they come in-house. Uh, so, the, it, but I think it's hit or miss. Um, and I, 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 you know, being... Being from New Orleans and, and being in New Orleans now, I, it's kind of like the roux, right? If you, if you don't get started uh, the right way, it, the gumbo isn't gonna taste good at right. the end. Um, but and it's the truth. In other words, um, when you when like just those two examples I mentioned, when you engage the physicians, um, like the emergency medicine physicians who have been paid less, and you say, hey guys, um, we're thinking about doing this. We're going to roll you in, and, and here's you're going to be your new comp model. And so that's so critical. Develop the right comp model to align incentives. Um, at the end of that, everybody's happy. Well, we've seen in, in during COVID, we saw transactions where anesthesiologists were were getting paid let's say four hundred fifty thousand on average for the group. They were brought in at a hundred thousand more, let's say five fifty six hundred thousand. Well, it just wasn't sustainable. And now we're looking at you know the hospital saying hey we just lost 50 million dollars can we continue doing this so who do they look at the physicians and now we end up in an animosity uh scenario and it just doesn't work that's what i was
3: thinking is that it seems to be the pendulum going back and forth on you, you contract this out under a psa and they bill out of network or and then you bring them back in yeah. and then you you go back and forth do you see that that happens back and forth and it's going to continue or do you are you, i mean you obviously want to find the that what works best for whoever your client is, whether it be the group yeah. or the hospital. But it seems to just be kind of going back and forth. I mean, we've seen it here locally, definitely.
2: We we agree. I mean, in other words, what we'll say is that it's, you know, I, I, we're, we're talking about the win for the hospital and bringing in, but we're, truthfully, the, the service providers are um, have a lot to shoulder. In other words, they're, they're getting the exclusive agreement, but they also have the full bag to hold when it comes to are you staffing the program, are you making enough money to pay the physicians and so forth and so on? So it's, it's, it's not an easy job. So what, we, what we're seeing is yes, it swims back and forth. And I mean, having done this now, let's see, I started at a local firm here back in 1991. So having done, done this in over 30 years, it's um, you, you see the arc of history kind of repeat itself. Sure, sure.
1: And see, that's the, that's the issue. So you, you touched on a lot of things in a very mm-hmm. short period mm-hmm. of time especially the dynamic, okay? So even if it's looking at anesthesia or if you're looking at ER, the ED department, um, as a hospital, because I'm a former former hospital guy, Mm -hmm. and so I I would think, okay, uh, my margins are getting eaten up Mm -hmm. every single year, but it's a service I have to have. I have to have it Mm -hmm. to stay open. I have to do that. And the culture, okay. There's a culture shift too because you've got I got my surgeons who are very, very nitpicky about when they want to have cases open. Let's, let's talk about anesthesia now, right? Right. And um, and so I have to, you know, be very considerate about keeping cases open, staffing those rooms. How's that's going to work? I don't know how to do that. I'm I'm, I'm hiring out. Well, then every single year in a, in a, in a, in a contract, especially when it gets down to renewal, Mm -hmm. those docs are coming back and that, that group is coming back and saying, well, I want more from the kitty. I want more from the kitty. I mean, I mean, it's a natural thing. I get that. So now I'm having to say, well, I don't have any more in the kitty. And then if I lose the docs, then I have to go get locums, which is going to cost me more. Mm -hmm. And then, so I'm in this conundrum and then, then I'm thinking to myself, okay, what's my payer mix? And now I'm going to a value-based reimbursement on cases. Mm -hmm. How is that going to work? So, is that how do you factor in all those factors when you sit down with Mm your your C-suite folks and say, Mm -hmm. "Okay, we have some serious discussions to
2: have." Mm -hmm. How does that work? Well, you said a lot. Um, So, so. (laughs) (laughs) no, but I think you're right. Uh, the, The what you said initially is that what typically drives the, the, the decision to up the ante or go back to the kitty is I need the service. And, and then, it, and I don't want to make it too simple, but it basically, is, they end up paying for it. Yeah, because they're stuck, um, they're, they're totally stuck. stuck. They're stuck. And, and what we're trying to say is that, you know, when you get evaluation, for instance, you know, evaluation on a hospital-based service line, like anesthesia or emergency medicine or radiology or any of those, you're basically building an income statement that's driven by provider compensation and staffing. And you're basically trying to determine, okay, what's the revenues, what's the cost, and what's the shortfall in order to pay an appropriate amount to all parties, physicians getting their comp, and the staffing provider getting their margin. So we start there, I mean, to be honest with you. And we, and we try to say, okay, where are they landing? Where are their revenues? Are they collecting? Because if you're in a subsidy arrangement, you have an incentive to collect. But right. a lot of these anesthesiology arrangements are collections guarantees. Right. So basically, you know, if you didn't have a floor on the collections guarantee, you were in trouble, especially during times of COVID. So, you know, you look you look towards collections and say, are you – Actually, doing your very best to collect, and because under a collections guarantee, there isn't really an incentive.
1: No, you, you're stuck on that.
2: Yeah, and exactly.
1: then, but then, so the only other place to attack in a collections guarantee is the management fee. Right. And so, and then of course you start hitting that. Yeah. You know that node. Everyone gets upset. There's a lot of what? issues to work through.
2: And it's and so when we look at these things, is is you have to are the FTEs being used appropriately? In other words, because management fee and margin and all those things can get kind of rolled in uh, by, I don't wanna say inflating on, but but by having too high of an FTE count that's being rolled in. Um, So you have to look at all that. And so we do that and we look at what's the production, what's what's the ASA units that the anesthesiology group is doing, what's the work RVUs, what's the number of shifts being covered um, and then are they appropriately using, you know, their APPs um, versus their physicians? Um,
1: it's a complex analysis. It and is. You, just, you don't just plug into a spreadsheet and say, oh, here's the answer, right?
2: Correct. And I, and I think, we, and what we say is that not every, not every situation is going to warrant the same solution. Um, yeah. And so we, I can't just automatically say, well, once you get to this tipping point, or once you get to this per day subsidy rate, you know, you need to, reel it back in, there's a lot of different dynamics.
3: Has there been any effect on this analysis based on new surprises going into effect, especially in our example for anesthesia and NER?
2: Yeah. So it impacts the reimbursement. Um, And so, yes, uh, So that those are the things you have to look at and see, because one of the things that we've um, also toyed around with is the idea, because from the service provider's perspective, they're in a volatile environment as well. So they think, uh, how can I agree to a three-year PSA when next year my labor costs may be up and my reimbursement may be down because all the things that we're just talking about. And so we've even looked at different structures uh, with the legal and from evaluation perspective of how do you build in um, levers so, so that, or, or triggers so that um, everybody's happy. You know, because I think that's what, uh, this is my personal opinion, this is, I think that's what uh, the service providers are trying to do. They're trying to get as much as they can uh, up front because they know, uh, come hell, come. you know, they have to um, staff the program. So So. what do you think is better for the patient? Do you think it's better for these services to be
3: brought back in or do you, based on because the hospital is going to run better with them all being under the umbrella? Or do you think it's better to have these Outside, managed by the groups that are just
2: focusing on on these on these special areas boy, that's a tough question um because i, I think it also depends um I, i'm I'm channeling my father who's an attorney also, and you know it it depends, it depends. It was always uh, an answer but um and the reason I'm saying that is because um I can see some benefits with um operationally like we just talked about, not everybody has the expertise in how to manage a anesthesia group or or a radiology group effectively. Um, And so bringing that in-house to a hospital doesn't necessarily automatically indicate that it's going to run well. But, um, and I I also think that with certain specialties, it works better than others. Um, And I think that's also a a key.
1: I think when you you talk about that, and I agree with you exactly what you're saying, larger systems have the ability to do that. Mm -hmm. They have the ability because they have the cash flow. And the revenant. Mm-hmm. I, 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 one of our podcasts recently. I said, "How many administrators does, does it take to run a hospital?" Right, and I think if we, if we if as th- many th- as possible. As many as, as possible, many. right? But the smaller, I would say, private hospitals and even smaller systems. That's not as that's not the case. Yeah. So, you know, y- you might have to contract out yeah. those types of services because you just can't bring in the expertise under the umbrella. You don't have the revenue to do that. Right, right. Well,
2: exactly. Uh, And so the working capital that's needed um, and just understanding the revenue cycle um, management of, of, of these hospital-based specialties is just different. Yeah, you
3: know, one thing that that I, I wanted to ask you about specifically, and we've had a, a couple of podcasts on this, and, and one in particular was a it's a physician-owned um, hospital that is strictly cash-based. So, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. what have you been seeing in your industry? Have you had clients approach you or systems or, or smaller groups look at going to a cash basis?
2: And how does that analysis go in for your firm? Interesting. We haven't done, truthfully, we haven't done as much on that area. Well, they're um, unicorns. They're, they're not yeah, many. No. Yeah. I
1: mean, you have to have Medicare, Medicaid, I mean, yeah. or, or you die. Yeah. But, yeah. but they have some unicorns out there.
3: Well, we And we did a podcast with, with one did. of those. And, and it's actually, um, you know, it's a local hospital here yeah. that, that's strictly, I mean, he, he explained to us that, you would go in for services, and there's a menu with all yeah. of his prices. And, and I didn't know if you had had any experience with that yet, or what your thoughts generally were on is that sustainable from HMS or from your perspective?
2: Yeah, I mean we 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 encounter it with regards to valuation work. So right now we have um, several who have specialized kind of arrangements. So concierge medicine would be one that comes to think of and and that kind of work. But um, you also see it in some of the uh, use Conrad's term, the unicorn. So that that highly specialized physician who may pull um, patients from abroad or regionally and and uh, and end up doing services on a cash basis. But um, so I think, you know, from from a dynamic of evaluation work, it's a little bit different because you can't just open up the survey book and right. scroll your finger down and find that particular individual. Um, but in terms of sustainability, I, I think it's tough because they're still operating under the same environment that everybody, every other hospital is operating under, and the, the average individual just can't sure. support it.
3: I mean, I, I I like the concept yeah. of it. I, I really liked his model and the concept of it. But but like you said, it, it's been ingrained in, in so many people and providers of having that insurance and billing that mm-hmm. fee for service.
1: The problem is that his and, th- and just to speak to that issue is that you have to you really have to know your market and payer yeah. mix to be able to sustain that, and the location is yeah. going to be critical because you're literally going after a very small percentage of the pie of yeah. the market sure. to sustain yourself. And so, uh, I. I don't know the future of that my, my, I was, well, I, I'm looking at one of the things that I think that was important in, in, in terms of healthcare in 2024 and beyond and I'm seeing this in provider comp and, and that's mm-hmm. why and I'm pivoting. I'm, I'm sort of going along and around the barn here uh, is, is is compensation based on not, not just regular RVU metrics but mm-hmm. on value. And my, my issue is is where are we going? And From what yeah. you're seeing, in other words, I used to and I'm, tell me if ten percent, five percent of comp used to be some sort of quality metric, right? It wasn't much. It wasn't much. Now, now I'm seeing up to twenty percent, up to mm-hmm. in one case, twenty five percent. And it was very difficult for the the the, the higher compensation model on a, on a, on a quality metric when the metrics are out of control of the physician. So patient satisfaction scores. Oh yeah, patient surveys. And, and, and then, of course, you combine this with a value-based reimbursement model. Mm. What do you see down the pipe from your colleagues talking about this? How does that affect physician comp? And then, of course, delivery of services. What do you see?
2: Yeah, that's a lot too. So I, yes, I, yeah, Sorry, I, I, I no, have a tendency. Good.
1: Forgive me, but uh, I mean, I, it, we have only we only have a, a little bit of time. So I'm, I have the tendency of trying to pack everything in. But we well, each one of those things could be a show. Yeah, yeah, I, I
2: I love coming back to New Orleans. So I come as much as you want. Yeah. Um, so, but I I think the, re, the the reason I say it's a lot is because one we're seeing penetration of value based arrangements vary across the country. Right. So our work as a firm, we do work from Alaska all the way to the Keys and everywhere in between, basically. So um, you can see a lot of variance. Uh, it's also the chi- uh, chicken and the egg issue. In other words, uh, a lot of systems are kind of hesitant to take that big step with regards to value-based compensation models when they're still largely fee-for-service. Um, and, I, and I get what you're saying. You, you're seeing some of these arrangements being in the 20 25 quality and and yes i we completely agree you're seeing that i, I think the the key is to get the uh, get alignment um, and so there's a lot of hurdles that need to be uh, addressed before it actually becomes a successful model and so for instance you know, we've seen team models work best when you're thinking about the use of APP. So me as an APP, for instance, you know, some of the providers may feel like, well, wait a second, um, you know, they they impact my compensation. So how do we align the two together? Um, And I do think that the quality metrics need to be meaningful um, because we're no longer paying on widgets. You know, we're trying to pay on how well was the widget made, you know, how, How effective is it? Um, And in this case, you know, are you creating a healthier patient um, in in the mix? I mean, when I was practicing, we used to have to check off on the super bill. um, This was, I guess, maybe 10, 12 years ago, whether or not the patient was diabetic and did we check uh, A1C or was a a cholesterol order, kind of basic kind of stuff. And um, we're, we're getting there, but you know, then, you have to make sure that you have your um, your systems in place. So your um, provider compensation uh, and, and billing kind of all intertwined. Align. Because otherwise you're not going to be able to get enough good information That's to good really point. be able to determine and success. And I we've talked to some
3: providers about, this, about mm-hmm. this shift and how they feel about it personally. And, and a lot of them don't want they don't it. Want it a lot of them are very comfortable with the model of... I know I did this surgery today. Yeah. I build these codes. I know what the reimbursement is from Blue Cross, and I yeah. know I'm going to make X in yeah. two weeks. Yeah. And I don't want to rely on a patient clicking a link, taking a survey, or you know, was my was my OR time under a certain threshold, yeah. or was my yeah. anesthesia time under a certain threshold, yeah.
1: or did I Th- like the food? I mean, did they like the did the room smell <laughs> nice? Sure, right? there's just well, the so many warm.
3: variables. I, I know that I think that. E- it's a shift, like you yeah. said, like, like everything has been, and it's a slow shift, and I don't know if providers really want that shift, because it's just, it's new.
2: Well, I think the newness is always scary, and so usually when we are, are, are talking about compensation design changes, um, we really try to start with kind of a crosswalk, so don't change anything, let's just do it mathematically, um, so that we can kind of show you what does it look like, um, and, and I think that's an important first step uh, to kind of showing physicians, okay, if if we started a year where we just tracked you, we kept your comp the same as it always has been, okay. but we track all these metrics and we say, okay, if we, if we would have flipped the switch, here's the way your comp would have rolled out. Um, and, and you're going to have winners and losers. So sure. you're going to have those who are happy and those who are not. But I mean, getting to your other point, in other words, I, I know we're talking patient satisfaction and that's really tough, but even just the act of, improving one's care. So in other words, now, now the APP hat comes on. I mean, I had many patients who would tell me, um, I, I, I work 40 hours plus a day, uh, a week. I have a, uh, an elder at home that I'm caring for. Yes. I know I'm, uh, you know, I have my A1Cs, uh, seven or an eight. Um, but I just can't find the time to exercise or I can't find the time to do these things. And, and Truthfully, there were very real scenarios uh, that were barriers, and it's like, well, I, I, you know, how how do I get judged on that when um, some of the factors are outside of my control? Sure, you no, know, um, I can, and I mean, the other way is to say, okay, um, you know, don't judge on the A1C, but judge whether or not I ordered tests. Well, then that I and don't you know just if that's click the box. Yeah, then it's clicking the right. box. So it's it's a really tough thing to. Get right.
1: Well, I think Medicare is going to drive that bus yeah. too. So, I mean, they're, they're looking to move to episodic payment, and so if they do it, then all of the big boy p- p- commercial payers going to yeah. do the same. So, yeah. Yeah. so is is the tidal wave coming? I mean, do you see that? I mean, from what you're even I'm talking at the LA events, sure. and you're talking to, to policymakers, you know, maybe here locally, and even really in DC, or hearing from CMS yeah. folks. I mean, do you see the tidal wave coming?
2: I, I would like to see a tidal wave of quality come. Um, my worry is that it feels the same as when we had staff model HMOs 30 years ago um, and we were trying to bring things in-house all under one, um, under, under one roof so that we can control the cost and control the quality and then that didn't work. So I, I don't know if we've got all folks moving in the same direction because you need the payers. You need the providers um, and, and it's, and it's really tough to get everybody.
1: There's been a aligned. distrust for that for years, decades. That, that, I mean, that's the problem.
2: That's the, that's the real problem. Now, you, you know, now look, you got Optum, you know, what did they, they acquired so many last year physicians, they're up to 20, 30,000 in terms of providers. That's huge. Um, you know, I, I, I do think the concept works. So in other words, you know, having, uh, a system, a true system, where you have providers under one uh, one roof. You may have the payers under that same roof, and you're better able to manage and control uh, costs. But, um, but I, I don't know if it's going to be a, a wave. There's a lot. There's a few more steps that need to fall before I can say that.
1: I don't disagree with that, but I just was curious what your thoughts were. I, I have sat in meetings at a board level, right, for mm-hmm. uh, IPAs under a uh, in an MA. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, program and I could tell you, the management of the care mm-hmm. is so da- the, the the drive the data the data dive down in the drive is down to the prescription, mm-hmm. the amount you write the drugs you write. I mean, it is that minute, and so I I, I wonder sometimes is is there a corporate practice of medicine issue? I mean, are, are yeah. Are we are we walking a thin line,
2: yeah. right, yeah.
1: where, at, like you just mentioned, Optum, mm-hmm. I, I guarantee you, over the twenty or 30,000 physicians, they are, and this is why I asked, how many administrators do you need? How many VPs of whatever do you need in a payer, right, to mm-hmm. manage and drill down on the data mm-hmm. for twenty or 30,000 physicians to, con- like you said, control and yeah. manage? It is are we walking a fine line? I mean, are we are we allowing docs to actually freely practice? I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, well, it comes to mind like the CVS care, that's not doctors but it's APPs, you right. know, where where you have an algorithm. I mean, if I my friends of mine who would and I don't know if it's the same now, but um years ago when you would uh, sign up and work at one of these minute clinics or one of the mm. the I'm not saying minute clinic per se, but one one of those you were restricted to only diagnose a specific set of diagnoses. And if you diagnosed that particular ailment, you were only given um, a a select few prescriptions that you could choose from. Now, I mean, to a certain degree, you can say, well, that's um, algorithmic and that's evidence-based practice. And and these certain things, um, you know, should drive what you do. I think that it it's um, when in reality, when you're actually seeing the, I mean, that may work for uh, a sinusitis or a UTI or a sprained ankle, but when you're dealing with um, more complex folks, it's, it's not going to work. I mean, I, I perfectly, I I had a very um, healthy um, 50 year old um, executive. Uh, She had just come back from Mexico on vacation she was about to go uh, to um, another business trip. Um, she came in to get some refills and you know, um, every provider knows this. It's as soon as you hold the handle on the doorway to get out the door, you always get that by the way question. Uh, and she said, well, by the way, you know, when I was, when I was um, running on the beach in, in Cancun, um, I'd get heartburn, so can you give me some Prilosec or some, some medicine for my heartburn? And I said, well, tell me more about this. Um, and you know what she described was pretty classic Angina um, from uh, in, in women and so and here you're looking at her and she looked fine. Uh, yeah fine so I mean, if I'm looking at an algorithm I'm probably going to think well, well she's fine and, and uh, sure enough, she had 99 percent blockage um, Oh my God and, uh, and so it's uh, it, it's an art form, and so I think, I think I don't think it's so 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 much in art form that we can't have some parameters to help with cost, um, but um, th- we need to leave a little bit of that decision making still at the, in the in the patient room.
1: I mean, I agree with that. I, I my concern is right, especially now with like your Chat GPT or yeah, AI, because yeah. I mean, AI is being talked about in healthcare. I mean, all uh, over yeah, the place, yeah, right? Ubiquitously, yeah. Especially with big data, and we could get into the whole weeds in that. Yeah. Uh, but are we going to sit? You know, just have a terminal hire, a, uh, you know, somebody, whether it's an APP or even an RN, uh, yeah. who just, pull, you know, gets the, the all these little machines and gets all the data in yeah. and Jarvis is going to say, okay, nurse, give her this, give her this, give her this.
2: I have another story. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> so I would say no. I mean, and, and like, you cause know. It's the, an
1: art form. I agree with you.
2: Yeah. Well, I, okay. I just had this conversation just the other day with, um, and, and primary care is what I did and primary care is, is number one thing about primary care in my mind is it's relationships. So I had a, I had a, a very strong (laughs) farmer, um, in Wisconsin where I had a practice. Um, this fella was, um. I think it was in his high 70s he came in with a uh, what he called an infection on his arm he said hey you know they call me dr joe can you uh, go ahead and take care of this give me some salve or something and i said well you know what this looks a little different let me let me cut it out and let me see well it turned out to be basal cell carcinoma um he and i talked about his his corn farms and other things that he liked uh, you know the wisconsin badgers and and all, all the fun things while i was doing the procedure with him and Well, he felt comfortable enough coming back a week later to tell me what really was going on. Well, he ended up having stage four penile cancer. Um, And when you're at that stage, um, he had visibly enlarged um, uh, inguinal lymph nodes to the Mm -hmm. size of softballs. And I called the UW Madison uh, urology team. and. He told me, he says, I doubt what you're seeing because I've only seen one. And I said, well, I think you're about to see number two. And sure enough, he, that's what he had. But that I, I, whenever I have residents or, or, or medical students that I've, I've been able to come across and talk to, um, that to me is a telling story in primary care because that fella had this issue going on for years. Right. And, and it wasn't until I took care of what he called an infection, which was incredibly minor, And sat and talked with him about. That he felt comfortable. That he felt comfortable. Right. Because it was a sensitive issue. And here he came. If he would have had a relationship like that, you know, with somebody earlier, potentially we'd have caught it sooner. But um, So I think that's, you can't algorithm that. I pray that it doesn't come to that. Yeah, I pray yeah, that can. it doesn't come to that. Yeah. Jarvis can't Jarvis solve, can't that. solve that. <laughs> that problem. Right. I'm with you. But
3: are you seeing restrictions being put in place by some of your hospital clients on those metrics for patient encounters, patient times? Because all that has to be measured yeah. to calculate. So swing the pendulum back in your example of, of meeting with that patient. You know, that's not another encounter that you got to bill for. That's not another encounter that if you worked for a hospital, they would be able to yep. bill for. And so and you sent that case out to urology. So, yeah. you know, all of those things hospitals yeah. are looking at as, well, that was, that was a waste of our time because they didn't financially benefit from it. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah.
2: I mean, I think, I think that gets down to the comp design that gets down to compensation expectations by providers, um, you know, all of that. So in other words, um, you also said a lot, so I want to make sure I hit on all the things you said. I think that, um, with respect to compensation, you know, you, you or style of practice, for instance, sure. um, if, if you are going to want to have that style where you spend more time and you have, you have less work RVUs and you have less collections, I mean, it's going to impact compensation and that's a reality. Um, I think, um, you have to make sure that you are are building that in, I guess, with respect to, um, where, you know, I don't want to say you, you well you yeah you have to build it in with respect to the to money and whether or not the finances are there to support um what you're doing but you, you, it's still i think that's where where if you work as a system and and you're looking at things collectively and hopefully i mean it's a little bit tougher in this instance because i have to send them completely out it's not that tough if we're talking about um you know cholecystectomy that's right sure. um <laughs> where, where i'm sending that patient. Within my hospital system, let's say um, it's easier to to, to kind of try to manage that, but um, but ultimately you want to make sure that you do the right thing for the patient, you know. Sure. Um, from that perspective.
1: Well, one thing uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of switch gears because we're seeing with physician comp, but yeah. but one thing I, I want to ask you, and we see it a lot here, um, is in employment contracts. Yeah. There's always a clause, and i see yeah. it consistently now that. Uh, Hospitals will refuse or or will cap compensation Mm -hmm. on FMV Mm -hmm. to avoid any kickback issues Mm -hmm. or Stark issues. Uh, Mm -hmm. Usually it's any kickback issues. So um, I don't know if you saw the case recently, uh, that case you and I talked about, the $310 million DOJ settlement with a system. What, what state was it in? Was it St. Louis? I believe it was
3: mid. It was somewhere in the Midwest. Mid- Midwest? I, yes. I can't
1: remember what, but it was basically an, an issue where they overcompensated the docs, mm-hmm. and they got they got hit with a DOJ whistleblower mm-hmm. action, mm-hmm. and settled for three hundred and ten million dollars right. on an overcomp and and usually every time i get and the reason i'm bringing this up is sure. cuz we get we get it on the uh hospital side occasionally we i usually we usually get it on the provider side mm-hmm. where the docs would say i don't want that cap in place i don't want mm-hmm. that and usually when i when i look at the mgma numbers for the specialty in the given area for that specific situation the comp that these hospitals are offering the doc is running around the median range mm-hmm. and so I mean, I said, look, you have, you have a long way to go before you hit the 90%. I don't know if they're ever going to get you there. I mean, you're talking maybe 10, you know, God knows how many years. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't worry about it. But my question to you is, how do you advise facilities on the cap? Like, in other words, I, I know you're asked. Sometimes we think it's just a, a, just a thing they throw in there so they don't have to pay them anymore. But is that a real issue for you? Is that something real and tangible? And how does that play out in your world?
2: yeah so um it's very real uh and we see it quite often um i, I i've seen it also described as a soft cap um mm-hmm. and, and basically it's a speed bump um it's a it's a basically a means for the system to be able to, to double check and make sure that everything is still compliant mm-hmm. what what I think happens um, in day-to-day life is that you, you may have a physician who is um, getting paid for their clinical services and then you get, then, then they add an an APP. So then they get paid APP supervision. And then there may be some, um, uh, graduate medical education. So then they get paid for that. And then, um, you know, you get all these stackable elements that start to add up. And if you're not careful. I mean, they can get out of alignment. Um, and because of all the moving parts and all the people that are involved, I think that um, what we see is that soft cap as a means to kind of just, just make sure that there's actually something in finance that says, if it's over this number, hey, let's just take a look at it. I, I think that... Well, the, let me I,
1: add, what's that percentage in your head? I mean, I mean we, we use MGMA a lot. Sure. And, and then there's others out there too. Sure, sure. But what's what's your... Red zone, yeah. right? Red zone area for percentage of total comp uh given using an MGMA standard, yeah, right? Yeah. What, is it eighty-five? Ninety? Yeah. 95? I mean what what in your mind, where does that red zone hit?
2: Well see, it's interesting because we don't we do valuations uh and, and for our clients when they are in excess of the norms. So, our, so our, beyond way yeah, beyond we, we are so beyond that? We're we're way beyond that. Um, but but wow. I, but it depends. So in other words, if you look at the recent guidance in the last two years ago CMS was very clear in the sense that they don't want to put a bright line it's not if you go over this number you're outside of FMV because if you are also over just even the median depending on your production they could argue that that's also outside of FMV it depends um, and well you so know how many
1: DOJ suits it have to bring for that oh uh, yeah. I mean it would
2: be staggering yeah yeah so I think I think the point that you're making is that I would say from a from a cap standpoint um, what we like to say is that, uh, if, if you're adding work, so where, where the cap really gets, a, um, a, to be a, a I don't want to say a problem, but it does present an issue is if you, let's say you're a three, uh, general surgery group, um, for a hospital right. and each of you guys are taking 122 days a call and somebody leaves. And all of a sudden now you're having to take another 60 days a call. Well, now you're bumping up the cap and then the cap presents a problem and then finance can't pay you uh compensation is delayed now you got to go see a guy named joe that at happens HMS. all the time and that that's what gets people annoyed so in my mind i think you know you could argue that uh, you know that you for those types of situations when there's actual work that can be documented like another call shift that's being done or or you've added an administrative role to this particular physician or something that you could you could potentially move the needle Further, that's and, a good. And that's a good point. So you can add the add to the cap, um, right. From that standpoint. Um, on so. that,
3: on that same topic, what do you do when you run into a system that is able to get or wants to employ that rock star, yeah. double board certified specialist who is going to generate a ton of revenue and mm. refer a ton of cases, but they're 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 worth it, and they're they're training deserves extra comp, but you're, you're outside of MGMA, you're outside of all the numbers, you know, what do you do in that case? Because fair market value at that point doesn't really mean anything, because there is no fair market value for that 1% surge
2: goodwill, right? Well, I mean, I think I think that so, you know, I, it, I have been doing this along with many other, uh, I guess, a few others, um, for 30 years that we've kind of built the model um and this is across a, a, a few other firms as well it's, it's not just us but um so what i mean by that is it's not without kind of some guidance so when that, when i think about what you're saying is that there are those rock stars there are those unique folks who are you know first in the world to do a particular case or um, working on, um, you know, revolutionizing uh, research or, or what have you. So I, I think you have to go beyond the surveys. And so that's the other thing that we've been very happy with, with regards to CMS's commentary is that um, the surveys are what they consider the starting point. It's not the end point. So we don't look at 90th percentile as the end. Um, I can tell you, I've, I've delivered many in the last month that are, you know, multiples of the 90th. Um, and it's because that's who we get called, that's, that's who pays us to do the work. For right. That. And I, I think think that, you know, just to give you more um, concrete answer is that, so for instance, if you do have a, subspeciali- a subspecialty that's um, highly compensated, maybe doesn't have as many uh, folks in the sample size, um, we'll do internal um, surveys ourselves um, with similar positioned physicians across the country, whether that's in an academic setting or whether it's in a non-academic setting, and we'll try to, we'll do our, our own interviews and we'll try to assess, well, what, what is the market, um, for this physician when there's only a hundred of them? All
1: right. I got a good one for you. Here we go. Okay. On your FMV opinion, when you do it for the facility or whoever you're doing, yeah. ever been challenged by one by DOJ?
2: But no, we haven't. Thankfully. Hey, um, that's a, a, and, you didn't uh, expect that one, did you? No, no I did I, not expect that one. I, I always say knock on wood, um, knock on your, you know, but, but, <laughs> but, I, but I, I think, um, our, our wood is solid because, um, we look at the facts and circumstances. Right. So, um, each of our opinions are, are, are certainly rooted in the analytical quantitative analysis, but it's also, um, I can tell a storyline. So I, I get concerned if, um, you know, I'm, I'm being told something by, a Uh, my client and I'm looking at the provider and they're not really uh, aligning with what I'm, you know, their, their value that being said to me, then I'm then I'm a little bit concerned. It raises an eyebrow.
1: Well, you knock on wood. Let's knock on wood for that one. Yeah, okay. absolutely. I to do, do a follow up one. In. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. When I'm thinking about it. Okay. okay, this is the second question. I feel Let me like see I'm
2: if on rapid fire. You are
1: on. <laughs> this is a crossfire with Rory and I. So, so this, this is good. This is really good. So, have you ever been called by a client or anyone on your team, but called by a client where you go in and, and they say, "Hey, you know, we're we're whatever the fair, you know, the valuation is," and you get in there and you're looking at it and you're saying. Oh, boy, we need to do something here.
2: Meaning that the client we, is unhappy with what? No, the, no, no,
1: no. The client is overcomp, overvaluing, or okay. the valuation is so off that you have to say, mm, we have a problem, we need to dial it back.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not a fun conversation. No. Um, with the CEO or, you yeah, know, right. No, it's not a fun conversation. Um, How do I, you manage that? Because you know the the, the personalities.
1: are you can't tell those people no; they don't want to hear no.
2: Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, well, we do. I mean, I think that's that's uh, <laughs> that's what we do, and I and I think it's important the, the hard to do. But yeah, I, yeah, I I will tell. Um, you know, um, you know, may, maybe I told this to Rory when he stopped by at the booth, and, that we have a healthy no rate as well. You know, I mean, that's 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 kind of what we say. Right. It's it's still low uh, on on the scheme of things because because right. really hospitals are still a business and they need to figure out how to do this in a manner that's sustainable. But, um, there are situations where they it, they need to just dial it back, but it's not just, a, it's not just, we just say, Hey, you need to dial it back. We will get into the same way we talked about hospital based arrangements. We'll get into the detail yeah, right. and the metrics and kind of say, Hey, uh, and then the other things we'll put on our Kevlar jacket and have that conversation with the physicians ourselves as well. Um, good luck. And, and well, I've, I've got scars to prove it, but, uh, but I think that that's, that, that's where our role is. In other words, you know, the hospital, um, you know, wants to pay as much as they can um, in, within reason. Uh, the physicians want to get paid as much as they want, like anybody else. Sure. And so our role is to kind of figure out what that playing ground looks like. And so I, I will tell our clients and offer it up. Hey, I'm happy to talk with them. And I think that's where I mean, I'm not a physician, but I think that's where sometimes the clinician helps sure. a bit. So I sure. can kind of we can talk through it and. I, I've been lucky, Conrad. Most of the physicians have been very reasonable. Yeah, yeah, they've been receptive. Uh, they may not have agreed, but but um, I think we could um, come to a well.
1: It's a good. Well, it's good you're the, you're the sort of the third party, cause yeah, you, exactly. Because the distrust between hospital administration and physician has been around for decades. Yeah, and so by having you come in, even if you're hired by the hospital, and having that data driven discussion, because yeah. they're data people themselves, they're, they're science and math oriented. And if you have that discussion, I think that would go over much better than than having some, you know, an administrator have that right, discussion. Right.
2: Well, what's interesting, too, is that, you know, we value um, and we value agreements and agreement terms. So we have situations where you could be an orthopedist, um, let's say, in, in trauma and, you, sh- and uh, you are taking call for the entire hospital every day for trauma cases even though the panel for orthopedic care is being shared amongst 10 other physicians. So what does it happens on on the ground? Is that basically on the day that you're not taking call, you get a call from a counter uh, from a community physician because it's an acetabular fracture, it's some complex fracture. And so then from the physician's perspective, who's talking about their comp they're saying, well, wait a second, I'm really on call 365 days out of the year, but I'm only getting paid for, 40 days. And, and so, and, and that's, and that's, they're true. It's It's true. It's legitimate. It's legitimate. So, so then how do you, how do you fix that? Well, in, in, we can't fix it by, I like to say that there's buckets, you know, and when you think about all the different things that the physician does, it's, it's valued in different buckets. And I can't make the bucket bigger because for, for call, I have to, you know, I can only do what I can. Um, with regards to the services that they're offering. But that's when we have that conversation with the hospital CEO who's upset and say, well, you know what, they, they, he's providing calls. So we can, why don't we set that up and uh, and consider these things. So we peel back the onion it's and try a, to help That's them. good,
3: very yeah. good. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, um, and Conrad knows that I hate saying it, but we talked about it for probably two years and did different episodes on it, is is the C word, is, is COVID. Is oh. from, we, we saw what happened from a, compensation standpoint for um for providers and, and really from from cms and reimbursement but can yeah. you explain what you saw as a valuation firm you know during covid and then what are you seeing now what's changing i mean obviously you were contacted from providers during covid on sure. on compensation but what did you see what did you do during then and then now what's swinging back another direction now
2: yeah so covid um was a unique year uh obviously that's an understatement um I, we did we a lot of work in the surge business, Uh, you know, in other words, how how do we cover the, the, the ICUs, the ERs and so forth Uh, on, on physician comp related material. We didn't do a whole lot because of the waivers that were, that were in place, especially if it was related to COVID. Um, But the, the after afterwards, so the 2021, 2022, when you had transactions and you had COVID dollars in those, in those transactions, you know, we had to be kind of careful because the, the folks who um, sold during COVID 2020, um, t- typically had a very low EBITDA and so their multiples were very high. So you, so if you just took the multiples from 2020, for instance, and you applied it to your 2021 transactions, you were seeing just um, overvaluing. Uh, and sure. it, because the EBITs were so low on the, on, on during the COVID year. So you had to be careful. So I, I, th- thankfully I don't, we're not really seeing much of an impact anymore. Are you seeing a
3: realignment of physician compensation or provider compensation now that we're, we're out of it and that there is it, things are going back to, or things haven't gone back to, but no. essentially more of a normal of where you're not needing that ER coverage and that ICU coverage like you were before. And there's, Arguably, more providers now in back in the workplace.
2: Yeah, what's interesting? Yes, yes. So I definitely think we're getting back to normal in terms of um, compensation. What we are seeing, though, is hospitals asking for um, more of those surge rates. In, uh, for instance, like in in our with the RSV and pediatric hospital care. You know, with with RSV going up um, in these last couple months, um, we were asked to look at uh, you know how do how do we pay for some of these um surges that that occur that really weren't and the rsv isn't new but it really wasn't a topic until COVID. you know from okay. that
3: standpoint i didn't know if you had experienced where you've had you had an increase in provider comp but now it's had to come down and oh. have hospitals had to justify that to their yeah to their we docs
2: ha- we we haven't and and it, and it's mixed in there is another topic that is probably also another hour uh, is is um <laughs> it is, is about an hour yeah is is the uh, change in the um the the fee schedule so sure. with with the work RVU values um and the E and M so all that kind of muddied things uh, a lot sure um, because you saw you saw primary care physicians overnight if you stayed on if you moved. If you stayed on the same conversion factor and you moved to the new fee schedule, keeping volumes the same, you saw 20, 25% increases in comp. Sure. And so, um, you know, all that kind of money. But it was a false
1: they, bottom because what they did was they raised the RVUs, but they reimbursed at the same rate. Yeah. So so how do you tell a doc on, a, on an RVU production model and say, like, hey, by the way, you're going to get a 30% bump, but we're not going to pay
2: you? Uh, well, and that's, well, <laughs> that's, many, that's, yeah, that's, yeah crazy. No, that's incredible. And so we counseled a lot of, of hospitals because we were, t- we were having them look at that in the sense that uh, – they weren't going to have the money. It was a
1: really, it was a terrible, terrible thing what CMS did with that. And and to me, it made no sense. I'm like, if you know everybody's doing production comp, why would you even do it? Why would you even alter the RVUs, the work RVUs, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think it was a long time coming and and it just came at the wrong time. Uh, And, 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 you know, considering COVID and considering all the other things that were coming out of.
1: I agree with you on the, on the EBITDA return on the mm-hmm. multiples during mm-hmm. COVID. I mean, I, it totally dipped because the, yeah. the trailing production and revenue was not there, No, not even close. Mm-hmm. And so my, my, I saw an article recently about, you know, we're gonna get, get a private equity a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see an influx in COVID of private equity sort of sweep up maybe a sweetheart deal, right? Mm-hmm. Because the EBITDA was so, they could argue a lower EBITDA on a buyout because of COVID. Did you see that? And where do you see that going in 2024?
2: Well, I definitely see it growing. I think 2021, um, I I have another team that does a lot of the transaction work, but um, we definitely saw it in 2020, uh, but in 2021 as well um and i think 21 was a was the big year it I, I can't remember if it was even with the trans payments it didn't yeah. it, it wasn't enough no and i, I think that we you're going to continue seeing private equity continue to to, to grow i yeah. definitely think there's a, a continued big interest it's obviously changing in terms of the specialties that they're focusing on um but um i, I, I you know i have a piece in out on um, on private equity acquisitions in uh, MGMA's connection this month um oh, great. and where we're where basically what we're saying is that um, it it just depends on where the horizon is for those physicians that are in the private practice um, so if you're if if a lot of the physicians who've held out up until this point um you know if they're getting to the point where they're in their twilight years um, private equity that's the drive makes sense for them completely um if they're in the younger years um well you know um, some of the compensation arrangements that are available at the hospital uh, or the health system level which is very different than the private equity level may be more attractive to that 30 something year old but um, but either way, I think it, private equity is not going away. Um, yeah. with do, you still, of... so.
3: do you still see that it's focused heavily on your dermatology, radiology, you know, ortho, or is, do you see it shifting now to other industries going forward in 2024?
2: ASCs, um, we saw probably cardiology started to wean down last year, um, hitting all the specialties you mentioned, uh, definitely radiology and, and, and ortho. Um, but I I think right now there's still a lot of work in that space.
3: Okay.
1: Interesting. Well, I mean, I, I could tell you we we could go on a whole every t- every little thing that we 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 have a rabbit hole on whether yeah. it's PE or whatever. Yeah. We could do an hour on that. And, yeah. and 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 I tell you, it's that's why I love healthcare. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing healthcare since, like you were saying, since yeah. ninth, in early in the early nineties. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was at HCA. We we were doing MSO days. Yeah. And so I mean, I'm I'm. I love talking about this sure. and I like seeing the trends and it's good to be able to spot the trends and be able to help providers work yeah. through that. Yeah. You know, I think, I think you're doing a great job. I mean, I, I'm very intrigued. I'm very happy that you, that you came on the show. today. Same, here. Same you know? here.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, before we close, is there anything that you wanted to end with on, you know, where you see things going in, in 2024. I know we have an election at the end of the year. Is there anything that you want to kind of lead into? Cause we're, we definitely want to have you back to I, talk more.
2: I definitely don't want to comment on any elections. I'm not, no, we're not, not going to get a <laughs> Yeah, We're not going to get it there. But uh, no, I mean, I think from a, from a, from a healthcare and valuation perspective, I think the, the it's, it's complex. And I think that um, for health systems uh, clients, I think um, really they're looking for partners. Um, and I think that's a, that's a key uh, in, in looking at how they handle and how they remain compliant because they're, they have limited resources. And so we, we know the financial pressures that are out there. And so what we're basically, um, arguing is that not every valuation firm needs to be, uh, or not every valuation needs to spend, you need to spend that many resources to support, but you definitely need to be cautious about, um, how you approach each of those arrangements.
1: Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to, yeah. to, in your busy schedule to come sit down and talk to us mm-hmm. in appreciate our studio here. It. Yeah, uh, I, I, think I am agreeing with Rory. I would even if we do remote, I would love to have you back on some of sure. these other topics. Sure. Uh, and maybe have a panel discussion if we could put yeah. something together like that. I think that would be fantastic. Absolutely, yeah. you know,
2: we really appreciate it. But if you
3: want to give your contact information to our listeners, and sure. we'll, we'll wrap it up.
2: Yeah, go ahead. Sure, sure, okay. Well, you can reach me at um, Joe. Period. Aguilar. That's A G U I. L a R at H M S Or you can reach me by phone at 678-984-6435.
1: Fantastic. Great. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming thank you. on the show today. And everyone, thank you so much for listening in to another healthcare episode here at health law talk at your Sherman Williams. Have a blessed day. And until the next time, take care.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of health law talk presented by Shahardi Sherman Williams. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel. Make sure to give us that five-star rating and share with your friends. Shahardi Sherman Williams is providing this podcast as a public service. This podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal advice, nor does this podcast establish an attorney-client relationship reference to any specific product or entity does not count as an endorsement or recommendation by Shahardi Sherman-Williams. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own, and their appearance does not imply an endorsement of them or their entity that they represent. Remember, please consult an attorney for your specific legal issues.